and you know the decay from the talking shop in Westminster through to beneficial impact on the ground was huge. This was when I started to think, well, where is the power? That was when I started to look at government systemically uh, and look at, actually, this is not so much about the people, it's about the system in which they operate. This is the Hidden Power podcast, and we are interested in how the world works and how to get it working better. In series one, we hear from people working at the leading edge of where governance is attempting to bring about positive change, who, by the same token, are pioneers in the field of systems thinking. In each episode, we hear perspectives and experiences of the current state of governance and where they see roads ahead. And, spoiler alert, a big part of these roads ahead will involve systems thinking. I'm Philip Tottenham, and in this episode, I'm taking a deep dive with Ed Straw into his journey to the heart of government. Ed has been a veteran consultant and advisor to governments since the 1980s, also chair of Demos, the cross-party think tank on democracy, and chair of Relate, the relationships counselling charity. He is now a passionate advocate of systemic change and has co-authored with Ray Eisen, The Hidden Power of Systems Thinking, Governance in a Climate Emergency. And in fact, it's at that virtual book launch that our guests in the later episodes were speaking back in April 2020. Our meandering start to the conversation included a bit of chat about companies centred on design thinking and systems thinking, and references a story in another podcast about GM and Toyota, which I will link in the show notes. It's well worth listening. I actually cut out most of our chat, but... uh, Ed had some interesting things to say about Japanese manufacturing, so let's start there. Here's my conversation with Ed Straw. One of the great ironies, a bloke called Deming, who's regarded as as one of the great management gurus, but he went to um, Japan, as you say, well, the Japanese picked up on his thinking Mm. around the systemic, around total quality and around those sorts of things. And it was the Japanese that bought the American guru's ideas and the Americans didn't. The other really interesting thing from the point of view of how we run the world and how governments operate is that you've illustrated there what I call the learning engine, this massive learning engine, Mm. a global learning engine that grew up in the wake of the Japanese revolution in manufacturing, particularly in consumer electronics Mm. and in automotive. And as you say, people started to say, well, you know, how on earth are the Japanese doing this? You know, I mean, some people were saying, well, you know, it's it's not possibly something that's anything to do with us because, you know, they're so distant and all the rest of it. Other people, a bit more enlightened, thought, you know, well, let's go and see what we can find out and what Mm. we can learn. And from that... You know, well, management consultancies, particularly picking up one thing from around the world and transplanting to another, the press, the specialist magazines, professional associations, trade associations, books, academics, and this vast infrastructure now Mm. exists such that uh, unless you're world-class at manufacturing, you won't be in business at any Mm. sort of scale. And... Could we please have those learning engines for national governments? There are two things I wanted to touch on in this episode. One is getting more into 
the spectrum of systems thinking, but in particular, right. that there's this Copernican revolution, as I think of it, in, in your perception of governance. And there's a story that starts off in a jam factory in 1977 and ends up with you... Yeah more or less feeling like you've hit the wall or the ceiling in, yeah. in terms of the sort of the possibilities within governance as it stands at the moment i got into consulting having done engineering and then an mba at manchester business school in the 70s which is a very interesting organization at the time and very systemic and behavioral uh, in its orientation And via a checkered route, I ended up consulting. And my first job was in this jam factory in Hereford. It also canned carrots. And our job was to uh, improve productivity um, and uh, either get the volumes up or get the costs down or both. And some fairly straightforward means were used to do that, which was particularly about the reliability of the machinery, because if the labelling machine is always breaking down, then it's going to reduce productivity substantially. So why is the labelling machine always breaking down? Well, you go back and you look at the maintenance department and its resources and its skills, and then you look at the maintenance regime for the particular for the labelling uh, machine, and you go back to its manufacturer and so on. The good word to use is, is detection and to find your way through to the root causes, as they're termed. And then I came in the 80s into local government, then into a variety of large charities, some of the quangos of of British government. There was no doubt at that stage that the public sector had become pretty static and, and actually quite fat and happy in some respects and trade union bound as well. I mean, there are other ways of going about it, but I mean, the public sector needed a good kicking was Thatcher's view. And, and in some respects, in terms of change, it certainly did. We were employed by local authorities and by civil servants to put into practice Uh, the various uh, Thatcher reform. Laws had changed. They had to, for example, local government had to do this compulsory competitive tendering, which was a fairly blunt instrument to shake up a lot of local government departments. They needed shaking up, but I'm not sure about the blunt instrument. So we got into the whole value for money stuff and all the rest of it. And, and, and the various uh, forms and waves of change that were going on. And you can look back on some of those and, you know, some, some of those tick, uh, some of those are big cross. The British electoral system sort of reinforces the old class divisions. You know, there, mm. there were the working class and there were the other class, the middle and upper classes, um, that there, there were the poorer people and there were the richer people. And so we had Labour and we had Conservative. Well, actually, by the 80s, a lot of people were reasonably well off. Mm. You know, this, these are not the circumstances of the early 20th century that gave rise to the Labour Party. And so, you know, there was massive uh, disadvantage across the, across the board. So, that, so the whole redistribution and equalisation of the Labour Party in the early 20th century was, was like, well, does this apply anymore? Because actually a lot of so-called working class people were actually feeling quite well off and mm. when were becoming 
uh, much more consumerist and individual in their aspirations. So, so I mean, that, by the time Thatcher came along, all of these undercurrents were bubbling along. Mm. And she, I guess, recognised some of those, but also took advantage of them. I started then to get, to get into an awareness of how government worked. A separate stream of work, which was with my voluntary hat on, in essence, was in terms of the organisation of the Labour Party and how it worked. I was asked to do this work for John Smith because uh, someone or other thought I was a good consultant. And he initially just asked for the organisation of the leader of the opposition's office and, and because that was disorganised. I mean, everything in the Labour Party in those days was disorganised. Um, they struggled to issue a membership card, for example, which you would have thought was they'd be fairly keen to do. So I took the analysis wider and mm-hmm. looked at the, the way in which, the, in effect, the Labour Party had two heads. And then once they got into government, you had the official opposition, which was the Conservative Party, but you also had the internal opposition, Mm -hmm. which was called the National Executive Committee, getting these to cohere. What happened was I did the report for John Smith. John John Smith very sadly died. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Tony Blair's Uh, Tony Blair came in, I'd interviewed him anyway, and he and his team knew about this report. But Murray Elder, who was John Smith's top advisor, when asked where the report was, said he he locked it in a cupboard and thrown away the key uh, (laughs) because it was sort of so revolutionary in terms of the way in which the Labour Party ran and its traditions and so on. So I gave Blair and his staff a copy of the report. It, it wasn't a single report, but it was a series of reports pushing people in various directions. In many respects, they took that up and implemented it, along with a lot of other stuff, mm-hmm. and turned themselves into this formidable electoral machine, which worked for quite a long time. At the same time, Blair and others had Kinnock actually had had set off these policy reviews to try and get Labour to think in a different way Mm. rather than just bringing the old standard ideologically-based, socialism-based policies to the table to to think about people's lives in different ways. And then getting back to how this fits into your view of government, so we've sort of, we're into the Labour Party, but I think there's a point where you start to, to completely change your view of, um, well, of the, power? Because as, as you were moving towards it, as I understand it, you had this sort of view of power as having a centre. But as hmm. you got to so, that centre, it was like yeah. sort of walking to a town and discovering that everything's miles away. Yeah, no, exactly. So so I, I was, you know, local government, uh, Quangos. Uh, then I started working in central government departments. Then I start working in the cabinet office, number 10 Downing Mm -hmm. Street, with my voluntary political hat on. I was developing policies with people uh, at the top of the Labour Party before they got into power so that some good things could happen when they came into power. Then Labour got into government. Uh, Bear in mind, I'm working as a consultant Mm -hmm. uh, in all sorts of fields by then, but but with my voluntary hat on and politically, I'm advising, you know, ministers. I'm going to meetings with lords and MPs and civil servants mm-hmm. and spending hours helping, advising, developing policies. 
but increasingly recognizing that I was essentially wasting my time. Hmm. But all of these talking shops, how, how much of what was being talked about would not only get translated into a policy, a law, a regulation or whatever it was, but actually would have some beneficial impact on the ground. And, you know, the decay from the talking shop in Westminster mm. through to beneficial impact on the ground was huge. This was when I started to think, well, you know, so, so where is the power? Because, you know, surely here, here I am, I'm advising Tony Blair, um, but actually Blair got into office and within six months he realised that all these big levers he had um, to, to, you know, change the points and the signals and all the rest of it, well, the wires running from these big levers on his desk um, were either cut, um, they, they were, uh, you know, one was leading to the wrong place, um, uh, some were stretched and inadequate, and he can't get things done. And, and I mean, he did various things to, to, to try and make things happen. And, uh, I mean, it's just the same point. And, you know, a lot of them are very well-intentioned. Mm. I mean, they, they, they typically at the top, they also have the psychological flaw that the, the, the absolute principal driver for them is personal power. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, they are, you know, they come into this thing well-intentioned as, as a rule. And so where is the power? That was when I started to look at government systemically mm. uh, and look at, actually, this is not so much about the people. It's about the system in which they operate. Uh, and, and actually, it, this uh, elections, for example, are not so much about who's going to be our prime minister and, and who's going to, you know, deliver us from evil, who's going to be the messiah that's going to come down and sort everything out. Mm. Um, actually, it's about the system. Uh, and if you get the right system, uh, then government will work uh, very much better. I suppose that there's, there's presumably a, a problem with changing the system insofar as we're stuck in the current electoral system. Yeah. And, and, and uh, yeah, when I talk about system, I mean the electoral system in the UK is a particular problem, uh, first mm. past the post, which most other uh, democracies don't have. They've got variants of proportional representation. And, that, and that's absolutely basic and fundamental. But how would that ever change? Like, is, that, is that something that people would vote for? As you say, you know, the problem is that the people who've got the power to change the system are in the system. Typically, if you're in a system, you won't see its faults. So how are you going to change it? Well, it, it has at the end of the day to come from political pressure, which is us realising that, yeah, you can have this flip-flop of election, but essentially it never fundamentally solves the problems we have. So it's about a realisation and a dawning amongst citizens more generally mm. that we need to start having debates and discussions and thoughts and deliberations about the system of government that we use. So let's get into this um, great spectrum that we were talking about uh, yesterday of the, the systematic way of thinking, which I think is probably can be symbolized by command and control. And then you have the sort of transition from a systematic sensibility to a systemic sensibility, and then from there to systems literacy and full-on 
systems thinking capability. So maybe we could start with the systematic. Yeah. Do you want to sort of explore that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, classically, the, the way governments go about things is this systematic process. So here is a problem. Uh, we, we, we sort of look at it linearly. Mm. Um, we look at straightforward cause and effect, um, and uh, then we come up with uh, an answer. Um, so, I mean, the one that is good to use is road congestion. So we've got road congestion, so that the simple, you know, cause and effect, build more roads. You build more roads, um, and uh, surprise, surprise, they get filled up because uh, people find they can travel further to work, um, so they can. there's a greater variety of jobs available to them, uh, which, which is, I mean, generally a good thing. Um, they can travel um, more for their holidays, so the roads get filled up, so they get congested again, mm. and, you know, we go through the cycle. Um, uh, and now, so the systemic you, orientation on that would be what? Yeah, so, so if you stand back and, and draw the boundary, this is the first thing, you know, what is the boundary of this mm. problem? So, so let's draw the boundary more widely and think about, people moving so around. hang on a second the systematic view is one that sort of sees the boundary and the problem as something that's sort of unchanging and objective is that a fair and, and, and is is narrow and and simple and it, yeah. and the problem is analyzed in isolation from all the other factors right but then the systemic view is this holistic total view of the entire situation of of the individual yeah. interests of the people involved, I think, as well. Is that right? Yeah, so we've got a people moving and indeed a goods moving problem. So if we then look at a people moving and goods moving problem, then we can think about other solutions alongside building more roads, which are alternative forms of transport, fairly obviously. Then you can go a step further and say, well, fine, but but are there other ways of moving around? And I'm particularly interesting now with the COVID-19 crisis mm. that a lot of people are working at home. That has jogged a lot of people and a lot of employers into saying, well, actually, this might be, you know, it's not a universal solution, but it mm. would make a hell of a difference if some people worked at home more often. And therefore, the need for that travel would not arise. That, of course, also cuts pollution. Mm. Um, so you then start to look at not build more roads, but are there other ways of people moving around, in this case electronically, which would mean that we don't need to build those roads or as many roads. So you're trying to look at something holistically. You're trying mm. to look at something in the round. I mean, with regularity, the reason governments fail is because they don't look at things in the round. I've got a good quote here, and you quote them in the book on page 123. Um, put abstractly, targets distort judgment, disenfranchise professionals and wreck morale. Put concretely, yeah. in services where lives are at stake, Targets kill. Target-driven organizations are institutionally witless because they face the wrong way towards ministers and target setters, not customers or citizens. Accusing them of neglecting customers to focus on targets is like berating cats 
breeding small birds. That's what they do. This is the point about systems, is they're so powerful that people think they can change within the, the existing system, but the existing system basically won't let you. And a classic way of reforming public services is that, okay, we're going to identify some performance measures. We're going to set targets for a hospital, a health authority, a school, or whatever it might be. We're going to measure that. We're going to then reward those that meet their targets, and we're going to punish those that don't. Of course, people manipulate the performance measures. In fact, the point at which I realised just how much manipulation was going on, I was having lunch with a set of judges at the Old Bailey. So I'm sat opposite a a senior, senior judge who's Mm -hmm. dealing during the day with some high-profile case, and he's explaining to me how they, the judges, manipulate the performance measures. Well, you know, at the point that the judges are manipulating the performance measures and gaming the performance measures, you know damn well that they're having a detrimental effect. And and as Simon says in the quote from the book, um, those performance measures are making the organisation look up to ministers. We are getting now to this idea of systems literacy and... One thing you mentioned is that Ashby's law of requisite variety is a key part of systems literacy. This idea of requisite variety, I think, dovetails very nicely with these ideas of consumer experience, user experience, uh, and deep listening. This idea of use cases, that you've got these different use cases across an organisation or a product or whatever it is, and that these need to be absorbed somehow, but... I'm not sure, that that's a small part of it, but maybe you can tell me what systems literacy really amounts to. Systems literacy means that you have got hold of, have grasped some of the many and various concepts that come together to enable and inform systems thinking. Mm. Ashby's law of requisite variety is one of them. So uh, the way this is this goes uh, is that um, in order for a control system, which might be a central government or it might be senior management of a large organisation, in order to exercise effective control, you have to know as much about what is going on in various of the units uh, around the country as the unit itself knows is going on, if you see what I mean. Mm. Because otherwise you just become a blunt instrument. So if you're the Home Office, the equivalent of the Ministry of the Interior in London for the UK, and you're controlling all prisons directly from the centre, you're going to need to know as much about what is happening in each of those prisons as the people in those prisons know. And you're never going to be able to do it at that level of centralisation because there's so much nuance, there's so much variety. And if you come back to the Toyota example, they, they learned pretty early on that actually, for example, the people that are fitting the rear axle mm. know more about 
how to fit the rear axle than anyone else. The people who are running the prison in Yorkshire, for the sake of argument, know more about how to run and how to operate that prison than anyone else. So if that's you... interesting. So the, the, in, in that instance, the, the reference is the person running the prison rather than the prisoner. Of course, you can bring Ashby's law down to the prison level because at that point, how much does the person running the prison know about what's going on in the prison? Mm. And how much do you need to empower the front line, that, mm. you know, where stuff is actually, actually happening? And how much of the decision-making do you decentralise to those people? Prisons are obviously a, a controversial and difficult topic because you know there's a whole sort of element of of rights of prejudice and everything else that goes along with it and i think that there's a a certain sort of conservative mindset that sees a prison as being like a sort of a place for putting people you don't want whereas obviously anybody with their head screwed on sees that a person that has ended up going to prison is somebody with some pretty serious challenges in their life it, I mean, that's very interesting because that comes back to another uh, key systems thinking concept, which is purpose. You mm. have to start with purpose. Why are these things here? What are they trying to do? Mm. And one of the big issues there's been over years and years and years in this political, ridiculous in my mind, political divide between those that, you know, we're, we're putting them in prison to punish Mm. And those saying, well, yeah, I understand that and I understand justice, but we primarily using the time that these people spend in prison to try and rehabilitate, to try and improve, to try Mm. and enable them to become uh, functioning members of society. So just to link this back to system to, to systemic literacy, because I want to get to the sort of what mm. systemic literacy is and then what the mm. full uh, yeah. systems thinking and practice capability is. Systems literacy includes Ashby's law, but it's really having a set of tools to analyse yeah. systems. There's a whole series of tools, and they're in the glossary of the book. I mean, there's about 50 of them. But That's, the that. book is The Hidden Power of Systems Thinking, Governance in a Climate Emergency, which... Uh, is loosely related to, to our discussions in, yeah. across this series. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we've talked about Ashby's Law, um, multiple perspectives, where you draw the boundary, how you frame a problem. What is it that differentiates systems literacy from the full systems thinking and practice capability? Okay. So then you've got the tools. At that point, you need to challenge yourself. Right. Um, so what is it that I am bringing to the table in terms of my traditions of understanding, my prejudices, mm. my good ideas, my experiences that would influence what I conclude or indeed the way the system's thinking is applied? So I've got to think about my thinking. Mm. I've got so to this is about identifying your cognitive biases and identifying you know, who you are and what you represent as an actor in this systemic drama. Yeah, yeah, because actually no one is totally independent and totally objective. Every researcher in the world is bringing something to the table. So you've got your skills, 
You've got some awareness of the mm. stuff you're bringing to the table. And the crucial words in all of this are in practice. Mm. So you've now got all this bundle of stuff. You've brought it to a situation of concern. And now we've got to put these things into practice because actually, you know, the proof is in the pudding. There's no point in coming up with some wonderful systems thinking analysis of the whole situation and then it falls flat because in applying it, you discover that actually, well, things weren't quite as you expected. So there's then this thing called knowing in action. Praxis is the word. Yeah. Theory-informed practice. It's like you're really stepping into a kind of a persona, as it were, that right. has these awarenesses and has these kind yeah. of toolkits. I want to uh, read out this uh, other quote, also from your book, um, where the person you're quoting, and again, you can tell me who says this, that the, the practice response in the systematic pathway is to produce knowledge about systems. The alternative, complementary, and less common path is to ask, in the complex and uncertain situation of governing, what might we learn if we were to create or imagine some purposeful system of interest? So there's two sort of key phrases there that I find really interesting. One is this idea of the complex and uncertain situation of governing, which I think, to me, I sort of see a, a kind of replication of you know, a teacher in a classroom all the way up to a prime minister or wh- wherever you are, that there, there is this sort of complexity and uncertainty. But then this idea of a, imagining purposeful systems of interest seems mm. to me to be core to this perception mm. of an organisation or a, a system of interest or a, a problem as a sort of creative uh, landscape that you're looking at it and thinking, right, you know, what... Where can we go with this? Does that seem like a good reflection of the systemic? I mean, you're coming to this with humility and with the knowledge that you yourself are unlikely to be producing a solution, Mm. a policy. Off we go. There you are. So you're coming at it that if we can be clear about what it is that this particular system, this school, is trying to do, for example what its purpose is, Mm. and then you can learn something through this process of systemic inquiry. If you can learn something about that system, which shared with other people within the system will mean that they know better what is going on within their Mm. system and therefore are likely to change it, that that will produce improvement. System thinking is neutral in terms of organisational form. It could be the system of the town or village, you know, where where or city where you live uh, mm. as a system. It could be a system in terms of your hospital or a health service. It could be a system in terms of government. It could be a system in terms of business. In some of the case studies we give in the book, I mean, one of the best ones is Froome in Somerset, where they, you know, faced a problem, too much demand for doctors and patient appointments in this uh, practice, can't get doctors, lack of funding. So what are we going to do? Well, can we reduce demand? How can we, if you like, divert patients from coming to the surgery? So this, this whole 
infrastructure was established by a community development worker who identified 450 local organisations, voluntary organisations, uh, just around the town of Froome in Somerset, 28,000 people only, 450, then established this network of community connectors to go and see people with chronic conditions who, you know, classically be sitting at home, getting more and more obese, eating the next biscuit, watching television all the day. And, you know, the likelihood is that they're building up their next emergency hospital admission. Got them connected to those people and got them interested in what else might they do? Knitting, train spotting, the shed, whatever it was. And they got people, not everyone, obviously, but they got many people engaged and involved in activities. And their health started to improve Mm. because they're socially connected. The biggest way to improve your longevity is Mm. not to stop smoking, stop drinking, have more tests, is social connectedness. Uh, which is a very interesting comment about these times, to see people and preferably face-to-face and eye-to-eye. So then what happens is you you develop this sort of network of it's called compassionate communities. Mm. So A, health is improving. Doctors' appointments and visits to surgery are going down because often they're, they're also just for, you know, social purposes and social connection. Well, now they've got social connection. But admissions to the hospital, the county hospital, have gone down by 20%, where in the rest of the county they've gone up by 15%. This is That's right. And they saved, I think it said they, they saved, is it 1.2 million? Enormous savings in, in money. So if you want to cut costs in the health service, forget all these top-down uh, targets, uh, forms, procedures, and all the rest of it. Set up uh, the means for compassionate communities, mm. you know. So, so you've got this incredibly, if you like, soft and woolly thing, which definitely wouldn't appear to appeal to any, you know, strong. We need strong government politician, mm-hmm. and you cut your costs. It's interesting. It's really it's about tr- trust in, in the detail, or trust in people, or faith in in people on the ground to, well, to have the capability. And the the point, sorry, I wanted to pick up on that was that the people that did that. Uh, in the surgery in Froome were natural systems thinkers. So often it's the case that there's the people locally mm-hmm. who know how to sort the situation out. Right, of course, uh, yeah. Uh, Which, I mean, you can tell the story of the... Um, oh, Tinmouth. Tinmouth Tiff. Yes, let's hear about the Tinmouth Tiff. Okay, well, this is from Dad to Ed, I'm pleased to say. So... How do things get decided usually? Well, there you are in Tynmouth. There's concern about the seawater flooding. The Environment Agency, who has the responsibility for that, in a remote office, works out a scheme, how they're going to do it, measure things, walls are going to be here, and off they go. And to a local meeting of Tynmouth residents, fishermen, etc., businesses, so on and so forth, anyone that wants to be there, they present their scheme. There's practically a riot. There's a riot, not least because uh, the fishermen are saying, well, you know, this water is all very well, but you just killed our fishing industry. Other people are saying, yep, I understand the wall, but, you know, look at my view. 
other people are saying, well, we've never had flooding in living memory. Why do we need a wall at all? And so the, the Environment Agency people retired hurt and scuttled back to their office and wondered what to do. This is called DAD. So it's Decide, Announce, Defend. So some government agency decides on something, it announces it. People may say tick, but often people will say hang on. And then there's a huge battle and they defend. And it goes on for years and years and years. And so then across the river, Tain, at a place called Sholden, they engaged some people who know about facilitation, know about engagement and deliberation. This is the same people engaged a different group to, to go in. So the Environment Agency, to their credit, worked out that the DAD approach was a disaster and, and mm. they'd all beaten up anyway, so they didn't enjoy that. And they knew about ED, engage, deliberate, decide. Mm. And they yeah, engage specialists. And again, it's a specialist profession. It's not something you just turn up and do with a whole bag. And, and it's integral to systems thinking. You need tools and techniques and you need to be uh, skilled at applying them. And so the first thing you do is you go down there and you say, you don't say there is a problem. You say, is there a problem? Mm. What do you think about flooding? You certainly don't ask, uh, start with a solution. So we then, a uh, process of engagement, people coming to public meetings, people getting involved in particular working groups, all voluntary and actually, you know, the proof yet again that if you go locally, you'll find an immense number of skills of great variety, perfectly capable of grasping these issues. Then you start to consider that, so the problem actually is far bigger than just seawater because you've got surface water coming down the hill and then you've also got local streams flooding as well. So hang on, we've, we've actually extended the boundary of this. Mm. We've got a better grasp of the nature of this. Then do we need a seawall? Well, let's have a look at the modelling that's been done by the scientists for the central government department, DEFRA. And actually, you know, you start to prod it and poke it and it turns out that maybe their models are too pessimistic. I mean, undoubtedly there is sea level rise, but maybe it doesn't need to be as high. Okay, do we need a wall? Could we put a barrage across? Could we so people come up with different solutions? And the Environment Agency was scared witless about the barrage one coming up because they said, well, it, it's, it can be impossibly costly. And the point was made that, no, leave the option on the table because people are perfectly capable of working out that it's going to be too costly. But if you shut it down now, you'll have a campaign for a barrage running for several years. So you leave it on the table, people can add up, they're not stupid, and the option eventually came down to a seawall. But a seawall which had openings in it, which would be shut by local residents when too high tide was forecast. In terms of time scale, I mean, the Tinmouth thing was still running by then, Mm. Um, um, took at least, in terms of total time, five years more than uh, Sheldon. And in terms of the budget, be not least because now everyone's engaged locally in this. They're engaged also in the construction and the way that's got to be done. And they're accepting, yeah, there'll be disruption and roadworks and all the rest of it. The thing came in a million pounds under budget. 
systems thinking is well into its stride. It's happening all over the place. It is being effective all over the place, but particularly in circumstances where things have been tried for years and years and years and never worked. Yes, it's here, but I think the more to the point, I think for people who don't know about it, what's really interesting to me and what's particularly inspiring to me is this tide of interest that sees these problems as interconnected and is actually offering a vision of a world at the other side of a climate crisis. If you do the systems thinking and analyse these various problems, climate change, biodiversity and, and pollution generally, mass inequality in wealth, well-being and power, governments struggling to actually do anything particularly well, those three things stem from the systems of governing that we experience. And if you sort out the system of governing for climate, for example, you will sort it out for mass inequality and you'll sort it out for the performance of governments. Um, so the, the, there's a sort of triple win here if we grip this thing. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to the Hidden Power podcast. You'll find links in the show notes, including that story about GM and Toyota, which is well worth a listen. In the next episode, Emeritus Professor of Social Studies at the London School of Economics, Eileen Munro, talks about her progress in the field of child protection. So, I hope you'll join us then. Goodbye. Goodbye.